0: Well, I want to thank especially uh, Nathan and Bonnie for uh, playing this morning and singing with us. Um, Miss Virginia has not been feeling well. She thought it best not to drive this morning, Um, and so hopefully throughout the week we'll be able to update you on her condition, but uh, just be in prayer for our sister um, as she was uh, not quite sure what was going on with her, and so we continue to pray and ask God. So we think about the text this morning. I'm going to think about presuppositions. Perhaps it's not a word you use or maybe you've encountered before, but I want to just encourage you. It's something that we all have. We all have presuppositions. Now what are they? Well, they're really the, the things that, that help inform the way we think. So, for example, many of you formed presuppositions over time as you grew up, uh, depending on your social context or culture. So goes the presupposed ideas you have about life, about friends and family, about existential matters. Uh, Some presuppositions are good and others are bad. Some presuppositions really uh, help to inform good decisions and others really make very poor decisions. So, for example, uh, a presupposition that maybe you have that you don't even realize is that when you read a book, uh, you have presuppositions. Every time you read something. Uh, you're presupposing something about the material in which you're reading. So, for example, if you were to go and pick up a fiction book, you go down to the library, you pull out a fiction book, you open it up, and you know that it's a fiction book, you come to that book with certain preconceived ideas or, or presuppositions. You, for example, would expect to, to hear a made-up story, fanciful and perhaps even unrealistic. But if you were to go down the aisle a little bit and pick up a non-fiction book, you would expect to see concrete reality. Perhaps you would encounter truth or at least truth claims. Well, the reason why I want us to think about presuppositions and really kind of think about maybe what are our presuppositions? What are the things that we presuppose when we read the Bible? So when you open the Bible, how do you read it? What, what lens, what pair of glasses do you put on when you read the Bible? Uh, so for example, uh, one presupposition that I have when I read the Bible is I actually believe it's true. Right? Uh, I don't believe there's any error in the Bible. I don't believe there's mistakes in the Bible. I believe that it's inerrant that, that it doesn't have mistakes and errors. Uh, you know people haven't fiddled with it and made a mess of it. Well, if you ask someone like Thomas Jefferson, for example, he would have a completely different idea of the Bible. And in fact, Jefferson thought that the Bible was full of errors and so he went to it and kind of took a pair of scissors to it and began to cut it up and take out pages of the Bible that he thought were just really not true much of Perhaps even passages that we're going to consider this morning. Uh, The miracles of the Bible for Jefferson really were were fanciful, made up. They were were child stories, if you will. They were for children, not for men of thinking. I wonder, is that your approach to the Bible? When you open the Bible and you read stories like Jesus and uh, raising dead men to life or Jesus healing a young child who's laying dead on a bed, do you think that those are fanciful? Do you find them to be made up? Do you, are you encountered with them? Or maybe perhaps this morning you're one who comes to the Bible and says, No, I believe it's true. I believe everything in the Bible is true. I believe there is not one mistake in the Bible. Every story is true. And you, you stand defiantly on it. Proudly. But yet, you live with doubt, discouragement, and anxiety. You often live without faith. Not knowing what tomorrow will bring. Oh, you believe these things, but do you really trust them? Do you depend on these things? That's what we want to think about this morning in God's Word. So I want to invite you to just turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. Mark chapter 12 and verse 18. And the Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will they? Will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. the point of this passage? What is Jesus seeing? Just a reminder as we think about what this passage means, we want to kind of get our bearings on the context of the passage. Uh, Jesus has been uh, confronted uh, over and over in this this sort of section in Mark's Gospel. Uh, This is the third day before Jesus' death, and uh, he's just sort of being berated one after another. And if you look at Mark's Gospel, he organizes it around groups of people. So just look with me. Uh, beginning at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him. Verse 18. And Sadducees, you notice the difference, came to him who say there's no resurrection of the dead. And then back at 28, down to 28, and one of the scribes came to him, or one of the lawyers came in to him and, and heard them disputing and said to one another that, and asked him, which of the commandments is the most important? And, and so what you want to see here is that it's like the three main religious groups in Israel are coming down on Jesus with one blow after another. First, the, the, first the Pharisees. They, they, they came earlier. And then the Pharisees teamed up with the Herodians, the, the, the rulers of the land. They, they got teamed up. The liberals and the conservatives got together in a joint attack against Jesus. And then then came the Sadducees. Here they are, and we'll learn more about who they are in just a moment. But then we have the Sadducees coming in and giving their confrontation and blow to Jesus. And then finally next week we'll look at uh, this, this lawyer, this scribe, who comes in and really presses in on Jesus. So what's happening here is that Mark is kind of showing us a couple of things. First, why Jesus is going to get in a lot of trouble here in a couple of days. Right, so sort they of preparing the reader for the fact that Jesus is going to be arrested because of some of these things that he's saying. That is, they don't just arrest Jesus for no reason. <laughs> no, they have, they're, they're building a case against Jesus. They're building a case that he is a fraud, that Jesus is a fake, that he's not really who he says he is, that rather he's making claims, as John's Gospel records, he's making himself equal with God. And so these men are coming and confronting Jesus and, uh, and attacking him. And so as we saw over the couple of weeks ago, and as we've seen, we're seeing the, the antagonist and the protagonist play out in the narrative. There is great tension in these stories as they're attacking Jesus with their words and, and confronting him. And, oh, friends, what a reminder this is that Jesus bore this kind of shame and humiliation for you. I mean, this is not the main point of the story. It's not the main point of the passage, but, but it is a point. I just want to make mention of this. Jesus' humiliation here, when Jesus is being confronted and laughed at and made fun of by the Sadducees, when they tell this silly story to kind of make fun of Jesus and his beliefs, well, friend, isn't that the same thing we face when we stand on our beliefs? When maybe perhaps our friends or family laugh at you and laugh at us and say, You believe that a dead man came from the alive? You believe that? That's silly stuff. That, that's children's stories. But I want you to be comforted with something. Your Savior faced the same ridicule. As the author of Hebrews tells us, Jesus is a high priest who has lived a life and suffered and was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Jesus doesn't take a bat out and start beating these men. Uh, he, he doesn't get the whip out that he's made for, for the temple. No, he patiently and graciously confronts their sin and leaves them bare without excuse. And from, that's what he does to you this morning. That's what this passage really is meant to do. Remember, Mark is writing to Christians. He's written this gospel, not to lost folks, but to Christians. So you might think this morning, like, oh, I know the resurrection, checking out. I know that, I believe that. i believe that since I was a little kid. You know, that's easy stuff. And for some reason, Mark thought it wise to write to these Christians this story. Those Christians in Rome as they were facing persecution and, and really death for their faith. He thought it wise to tell this story. Of all the stories he could have told, he tells him this one about some Sadducees confronting him about the resurrection. So what does this passage really mean? Well, here's sort of my point, uh, main point. When you doubt the resurrection of the dead, it reveals your ignorance of Scripture and the power of God so that it causes you to misunderstand the nature of God And his eternal love for his people. If you do not believe in the resurrection. You do not believe in God. If you reject the historicity. That is the historical fact that Jesus died and rose again. And that all those who have faith in him will also rise. If you deny that and say that it's not true. That it's fanciful and made up then you don't know the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible rose from the dead. And it points us to His nature and His eternal love for His people. That is, the resurrection has a connection to who God is. What He has for His people. So as Christians then, the resurrection is the central piece of our faith. The resurrection is the central key to all that we believe. If you were to take the resurrection away, so to say, you know, we don't really need that doctrine. We'll sort of set it to the side. Sure, if you believe in that, that's good. But if you don't believe in that, you know, that's okay. Oh, well, friends, you don't have Christianity anymore. If you take away the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You don't have it. It's gone. It's, It's left. And so that's what we want to give our time to think about this morning. First, we see an attempt to humiliate Jesus. Uh, this passage easily divides, if you just want to look at it, verses 18 through 23, and then verses 24 through 27. Most of your Bibles should be paragraphed that way. I will outline the sermon this way. Two points. First, an attempt to humiliate Jesus. An attempt to humiliate Jesus. Uh, we're told by Mark that a group of Sadducees have come to Jesus. Well, uh, this is maybe perhaps strange. Maybe you don't know who these guys are. Who are these guys? We're, we're, this is the first and only time these, these guys are mentioned here in Mark's gospel. And so we really haven't been confronted with this group of people. These Sadducees. Well, uh, these were a religious group of people. They were the ruling class in Israel. They were the wealthy, noble folks. Um, they had the money and the means to lead. And, uh, and so uh, kind of maybe a helpful illustration, but don't press this illustration too hard. Um, is that Pharisees were kind of like your Bible thumpers, right? You know, your real religious people. The the ones that were the the fundamentalists. They were the ones that, you know, were quoting the Bible all the time. They were the ones that were, you know, just constantly, got to get back to the Bible, got to get back to the Bible. Well, it's not that the Sadducees were sort of the opposite of that. It was that the the Sadducees were cherry pickers. Uh, you You know, you've maybe encountered them. They're the ones that just like kind of pick their favorite passages out of the Bible. You know, John 3.16 and, uh, and the like. Those are like the only verses they know. Those are the ones they quote. Um, and, and they don't really know anything else about the Bible. You may hear them maybe even degrade the Old Testament. They don't even read that. What's the Old Testament? That's old, that's old stuff. We just read the New Testament. Well, the Sadducees were kind of like that in the sense that they only uh, believed that the Torah, that is the first five books of our Bible, were I- inspired by God. Those, the, the books of the law, the books of Moses, those are the only ones that they believed were, were Scripture, that they were from God. And so they, they rejected, they held high the Torah, and they also didn't believe the resurrection. They didn't believe the resurrection of the dead. And you just look at verse 18. Mark kind of helps us understand that little fact about them, right? He kind of tells us uh, this, this fact. He says, uh, and the Sadducees came, who, that is the Sadducees, say that there is no resurrection. So so the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, uh, unlike the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, for example, uh, would have often confronted the Sadducees about these things. So like, how do we know all these things? Well, an early Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, yeah, it's an amazing name, uh, Josephus, wrote a little book in the first century, and he wrote a lot about the Sadducees, and that's how we know things about them. The other thing that they denied was the existence of angels, and there was a whole myriad of things that they denied, and so a, that's helpful to understand, particularly when we think about how Jesus is responding then to these Pharisees and the tools that he uses to attack them. Well, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees, excuse me, come in, and uh, if you notice in verse 19, they begin to, to introduce the, the law of the levirate marriage. They say, "Look, uh, teacher, Moses wrote for us this law, this commandment uh, about marriage," and uh, and and so here, and they re- he kind of they quote uh, Deuteronomy twenty-five five: "If a brother dwells together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her," and, and so. For example, you, you all are familiar with this if you've read the book of Ruth. So if you've read the book of Ruth, the story of Naomi and, and uh, Ruth and Boaz and, and that whole thing, um, is really the Leverite marriage lived out in sort of a narrative form. And so if you're familiar with that story from the Old Testament, that's what they're referring to here. Uh, so if you remember, Boaz had to go to the guys at the front of the vill- at the front of the, the uh, of the town and had to get permission to marry uh, Ruth. Had to get all the approval and everything. Well, that's what's going on here. What Boaz is doing is is he wasn't the next in line. He wasn't the closest brother, and so he had to get the he had to get approval from that guy. And and, and that's what these Sadducees are referring to this high held law uh, of the Leverite marriage that if you marry uh, a guy, so sort of from a perspective of a woman, and that guy dies, You ha- and you don't have any kids, you go marry his brother uh, if he's not married, okay? And, and if he's married, then you go on down the line, right? And all of that was to, to preserve the, the legacy of that brother, the older brother. Oftentimes the case was the, these were an older brother and, and really passing on. The other issue was land rights, right? And so you were passing on land rights. And, and again, that was a popular theme in Ruth, in the, in the story of Ruth, right? The land there that Boaz had. And so all of this is kind of like uh, us as we maybe make plans to, for our children when we die or perhaps plans for our legacy to make sure our name continues on. Uh, I remember growing up, one of the things that was often uh, encouraged of me uh, because I, in my family, was the only male that had my last name of all of my uh, great-grandparents. My great-grandparents, I was the only male, and so of course, you know, to carry on the name, right, that legacy. And so we kind of do this similar thing with the passing down of our last names. It's a, it's a sort of a lasting legacy, and we tell stories about, you know, great-grandfather so-and-so, you know, and we use their last name. And that legacy that's passed down. And so this is about legacy. And it was something that was part and parcel to everyday life for them there in Jerusalem. And what they do then is confront it and almost make light of it. They, they basically are saying if Leverite marriage is true and commanded by God, and you say the resurrection is true, how do those go together? They don't go together. Jesus it's ridiculous. It's untrue. It's, it's it's fanciful. the The resurrection isn't real. And so they create this most ridiculous scenario about about this Leverite marriage. And, and you'll see, uh, beginning in verse twenty, there were seven brothers. The you know, guy got married. He had a wife. The, the guy dies. Then the wife goes to the second brother, all the way down to the seventh, and then she dies. Right. And so, this is fanciful in the sense that this would be really far-fetched to really have happened. And I think that's the point. These Sadducees approach the resurrection as if there's no way that it could be true. No way that it could be accurate. There's no way. And let's create this fanciful story to prove the fact. And brothers and sisters, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? That's kind of how sometimes as non-Christians approach the Bible. There's sort of this pride proud, sort of, you know, that's not true. Sadly, we see that among many preachers, particularly during this time of year when we talk about the virgin birth. Oh, many pastors preach from pulpits and say that the virgin birth is not true, undermining the Bible and the historicity of it. So the question is, do you believe science more than you believe the Bible? And so, what it is, is a position of faith. Which do I see is most important? Which do I hold up as more valuable? What do you really trust? What you can see and verify, like in science? Or do you just really say, these stories are made up and silly? And what we see ultimately here was there were an attempt to humiliate Jesus, to kind of prod him and laugh at him and make fun of him and say, look, your little doctrine, your little teaching about the resurrection, I mean, come on, that's silly. What about people that have multiple wives? What about people that, that have multiple marriages? What, what's going to happen to them when they when they get raised from the dead? What's What are they going to do in heaven? So what we see, though, is a wrong understanding of heaven, And a wrong understanding of the resurrection. And friends, that's what we do. That's what I mean by presuppositions. We approach the Bible with our own preconceived ideas about who Jesus is, about God and his love. We have these ideas about who God is, but we don't allow the Bible to sort of speak into our lives. We kind of tend to go to the Bible and kind of speak into it. That's how we come up with pictures of Jesus that are blonde-haired, blue eyes. It's not true. Jesus didn't have blonde hair. He did not have blue eyes. Hitler wanted you to believe that he did. And so we put him on our walls, thinking that it's the truth. But it's not. Jesus will tell us who he is. So we want to be confronted by that this morning. So what did Jesus say? Let's look, secondly, Jesus' reasoned response in verses 24 through 27. This is really the heart of the matter, isn't it? Jesus in verse 24 just sort of lays out bare their sin and ours I hope. What he says in verse 24. Look, like you know what the problem is, he says? You know what the real issue is? You want to know why you are wrong? This is the reason. You see it? Because you do not know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Sadducees, here's your problem. You see, you think you know God, but you don't. You think you know his word, but you don't. Jesus here is is really blowing up their entire faith world. What they held most true and to be reality was their belief in God and their belief in the Bible. And Jesus is saying, you don't know either. It's like Jesus rolling down to the to the seminary and going after the seminary president and all the the professors. You know, all the guys who know everything, right? All the know it alls, and saying you don't know God and you don't know the Bible. And I often remind you of that truth. And I want you, if you don't ever remember anything I say, remember that there is a way to know the Bible and not know the God of the Bible. There is a way in which in God's glorious economy, you can know the facts, you can know the features, you can know everything about God as revealed in the Scriptures and still not know God. Miss him, and I'll have a relationship with him. And this is what Calvin, for example, in his Institute of Religions wanted us to know. So when Calvin sat down to write a theology book, what was he going to start with? He wrestled with it there in Geneva. He thought, you know, do I start with the gospel, you know, God's good news to men, or do I start with God? Do I start, what do I start with? How, how do I start this treatise on who God is? Well, he ultimately landed, right, I think, on, on the knowledge of God. Right knowledge of God leads to all of these other things. Calvin writes this is the introduction to his very first institute. He writes, The whole sum of our wisdom, wisdom that, wi- that is which deserves to be called true and assured, broadly consists of two parts knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. We observe that no one ever attains clear knowledge of ourselves, of self, unless he is first gazed upon the face of the Lord and then turns to look upon himself. What Calvin is saying is that you cannot know yourself or the world around you unless you first know the Lord. That is that all things begin with the knowledge of God. Paul writes in first in 2 Corinthians 10, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what was what was Paul after? He was after people's minds, not their hearts. One of the heroes, maybe, for your own life, is John MacArthur. John MacArthur in the 1970s really set out on a on a blazing trail to, to teach preachers, and to teach congregations and members that God is after the mind, not the heart. That we can, you know, I could come up here and I could really tell you some tear-jerkers and really get you going emotionally. What God cares most about is your mind. What you think. That's why it's important to think when you come in here. Oh, friends... Brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be passive when you enter this room and just think that everything I say and everything you hear and everything we pray and read is true. That we want to be like the Bereans and test everything with God's Word. So true knowledge begins with God. Jesus can make this grand claim against the Sadducees because what he realized in their theology was that they didn't really have a theology that was connected to God. They thought they knew God, but they didn't. Isn't that what we do with the Bible? We take the Bible, we quote it, we we often use it for our own needs, but we really don't understand God. Understand what God is doing in our lives. So, what does Jesus then point to? Well, in verses 25 through 27, he really lays out for us the hope of the resurrection. He lays out for us the hope of the resurrection. He shows us and he encourages us and reminds us of this great truth that you and I have hope in the resurrection of the dead. Look with me to sort of three things that Jesus does. First, we see Jesus' authoritative revelation about the resurrection. Look what he says in verse 25. Excuse me. In, yeah, verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, let's just pause. The they he's referring to there, I believe is the seven brother, or you know, the seven brothers. Right? but also applies to us, okay? So we don't want to get so narrow that this doesn't really apply to us. I think Jesus is talking specifically, but also generally here. So some principles that we can learn. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, we don't have time to really unpack all that this is meaning, but I want to maybe just use our time To confront confusion. Um, One word of of warning. Do not read more into Jesus' words than he says. For example, a popular cultural thinking is that we become angels when we die. That is false. That is Hollywood. That is man-made. It's not true. I don't want to be no angel. I want to be like Jesus. Jesus. I want to be a man like Jesus. And so we don't become angels. And so you can read that and say, what well, he says we are like no, angels. We're kind of like, we're as angels. In the, this one specific way, we're like angels. That is, we're not getting married. Now, I know that if you're married this morning, maybe you're widowed, and you had a, a fruitful marriage with your spouse, you read this and you feel discouraged. You feel like, Jesus, you know, I've invested 50 years in my marriage, and you're telling me it's not going to matter? That then when we get to heaven, uh, none of. now you see how I just read into what Jesus was saying? Jesus didn't say any of that, did he? He didn't say any of what I just said. Jesus said that you don't get married when you're in heaven. That's all he says. That we're not married. Does it mean that you don't have knowledge of your spouse in heaven? In fact, the Bible says that we'll all know one another more intimately than we do here on earth. So whatever it's going to be in heaven, it's going to be better than here. And we praise God for that. So again, I just want to caution you. Don't go to the Bible with your own little pre-ideas that you've heard in pop culture. Go and read what Jesus says. They're not like. They're like angels. They're not given in marriage. Okay? And so, but I want you to see something. I want you to see something. i read over it. I, I skipped over because I knew you wanted to really get to the good part. Look at verse 25 again. For when they rise from the dead. Oh, do not miss what Jesus is saying. He says, there's no doubt. He doesn't sit and like lay out an argument like, you know, the Bible says and God said. He says, when they rise again. There's no question in the mind of this Jesus of Nazareth, of the Bible, that there is a resurrection. And so, Back to my previous statement, that if you do not believe in the resurrection, you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible believed in a resurrection of the dead. He believed it. He taught it. And so we see something of Jesus' own authoritative teaching. Also in verse 27, he says that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Again, he's making authoritative truth claims about who God is. We see also in verse 26, Jesus' authoritative teaching from the Bible. So you wonder, does the Bible teach, in the, does the Old Testament teach about the resurrection? Well, look what Jesus says. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush? Now notice where in the Old Testament Jesus is quoting. In the Torah. In the first five books. In Exodus there. Right? Right? Remember, that's what the Sadducees held to be true, what they believed. And, and so Jesus is grounding his teaching in the Bible, in the Bible. He's like, saying, this is, this is truth. Now there's other passages like, like Daniel 12 that he could have turned to. Um, remember uh, Jesus, uh, David and his son, when David's son was taken from him because of his sin. What did he say? He said, I will yet be united with him. He believed in the resurrection. He believed in the the life everlasting. We see also something Jesus teaches us about God. The resurrection has everything to do with the nature of God. Look what he says. Notice what he says in this passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Friends, death is the result of the fall. The reason why there is death, the reason why our loved ones die, is because this is a fallen world. God did not create death. In the new, in the in the original world with Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and Eve, there was life. They were to live with ever live forever with God, but because of their sin, death entered the world. And because of one man's sin, all sin and all are sentenced to death. Eventually, all die. Every one of us in this room, we have a hundred percent. Unless the Lord comes again, we will die will happen because we live in a fallen world. But God sought to push back against that. Death was not the final answer. And if you remember back there in Genesis 3, the whisper of life was there. God had told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you're going to die. You're going to die. But they didn't die, did they? Well, at least not immediately. And that gap between their sin and their death was God's grace. Where God covered their sin with the death of that animal. And pointing to the fact that one day God will send a Redeemer. To deliver us from the power of sin and death. That all those who put their faith in Him would live in Christ. God's redemptive plan was that that, that we should not taste death, but that we should live. That's what we read about in 1 Corinthians and heard in 1 Peter, uh, that the resurrection points us to life everlasting. Oh, death, where is your sting? We're not afraid of death. Friend, if you're a Christian this morning and you are worried about death, oh, brother and sister, I pray that you would come and see me. That you would know the hope of the Gospel. The hope of the resurrection. That God in Christ came to rescue us from death. And to give us life. Now this morning, you may be a Christian. You may say, you know, I believe in the resurrection. I'm not afraid of death. I know that, that if when I die, in that moment I'll be taken up with God. I believe that. I trust that. I believe all those passages and those wonderful things we've heard and sung. You live in misery. You live in sadness and depression. You live in everyday discouragement and anxiety. So how does the resurrection change that? It gives you hope. It gives you hope. No, 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 not wishful hope. Not worldly hope. Like, you know, I wish this would happen in my life. I wish... No, the Bible never uses that word in that way, referring to the hope of the resurrection. No, it is, it is genuine. Like, you can stand on it. You can jump on it. You can go all in on it. And you can trust it that God has you. That we can sing in Christ alone. That no one can snatch you out of His hand. Isn't that the hope of the Gospel that Paul gives us in Romans 8? And he grounds it all in the resurrection. He writes, What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will we not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it not God who justifies? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? You see it? Who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? And it's the resurrection that he grounds these statements in. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Friend, if that is your life, I know it's mine. I feel like I'm dying every day. Well, it's to God's glory that we might live in Christ in the hope of the resurrection. That is that we put our worries not in this temporal world, but in the eternal life. I I say this so much, I, I know it's silly, and I know you probably get annoyed with it, but I will say it again. I want you right now to conceptualize in your mind what your biggest burden is. What is your biggest burden right now in your mind right now? You don't need to say it out loud, I don't want to know it. What is the biggest thing, the biggest hurdle that's in your life? Is it your health? Is it your anxiety? Is it your depression? Is it your family? Is it your children? What is it? And I want you to think, in tr- one trillion years, will you care about that thing? Will you care that you've been diagnosed with cancer in a trillion years? Will you care that your children and your grandchildren are crazy? No. You care. Will you care about that annoying boss? That frustrating sister or brother? That health that seems to wane? No, the hope of the resurrection reminds us. As Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything, anything, he says. In all creation. Not one thing you can think of. He says, bring it up. No. Bring it up. No. Bring it up. No. Will separate us from the love of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can't even mess it up, he says. That's glorious because I mess it up every day. As a congregation, this is why we sing hymns. This is why we read Scripture. Friends, hymn singing is meant to remind us of these truths. We hear sermons. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We see baptism. All to remind ourselves of the power of God in Christ. To remind us that we were once lost, but now we've been found. We were once blind, but now we see. To remind us of these things. Oh friend, this morning I pray that you would spend time remembering the power of God. That you really were that wicked and evil. That God is that gracious and glorious. That God in His grace didn't have to save any one of us. But in His love, He did. C.S. Lewis in writing the Chronicles of Narnia. I know many of you maybe have read them. If you haven't, I encourage you to. C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia. Wonderful reading. But it's the last chapter. Well, It's the last paragraph of the the entire series. uh, Thousands of pages. It's a vital paragraph that I love the most. In all of the, the adventures that they went on, There in Narnia, and all the the, the crazy battles that they went in, and all the wonder that they saw. Lewis writes this. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, the end of all stories. And we can most truly say, That they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And their life in this world, and all their adventures in Narnia, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, we are on that journey to the celestial city. Our life is but the title page of eternity. The worries and the cares and the burdens of life today, oh, I know they're real. I'm not saying escape them. I'm not saying run from them. I'm saying tomorrow, new mercies come. Gracious God in heaven, God, we are overwhelmed by Your kindness in Christ that You would save wretched sinners like us for Your glory. Oh God, we really just can't get over the Gospel. We can't get beyond it. It's, it's all we have. It's our only hope. We have nothing in our pockets. We, we carry nothing in our hands but Jesus. It's by faith alone. There's nothing in us. God, we do pray that you would encourage our faith, that you would turn our doubting hearts to trust in you again, that our waning spirits would see new life again, that we would experience victory in Jesus. Not just seeing about it, but know it to be true, having experienced the power of God, having known the eternal God of the universe. God, this is our prayer today. In Christ's name we pray. Nathan's going to lead us now. We're going to sing together. Let's stand and sing victory in Jesus.